0: Dress it up, right eyed bushy tailed ready to go, take on the rest of the semester. No. no. <laughs> um, apparently, like, the orange-yellow high-dye was, the, the orange-yellow hair dye was really in this. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Um, Easter. Well, at least it wasn't, like, pastel blue or something, you know, so. Um, or pink. It matches the green, so that works. It does, yeah, you guys. You guys, oh the people it's on. Um, anyway, for those you who don't know me, I'm Sid Druin. I'm the campus minister for this thing called RUF, Reform University Fellowship. Uh, RUF is a Christian campus ministry at New Mexico State that exists for the convinced and the unconvinced, for the believer and the unbeliever, for the wild at heart and the tame at best, <laughs> for the student who bleeds school spirit, runs the underground basketball newspaper, and has a different NMSU t-shirt for every day of the week and for the student who is quietly applying to transfer universities (laughs) and hopes to take their student services elsewhere. So, RUF exists for those who feel like the Bible is a joke without a punchline and for those of you who feel like the Bible is serious business about what life takes. In other words, whoever you are, whoever you are, thanks for coming. Uh we're glad to see you. Uh, we hope that RUF gets to know you, you get to know R Um a good way to do that is if you've been coming around for a while, introduce yourself to somebody, um, and maybe somebody you've already known and you feel like you're awkward and you don't like really want to go up to them again, ask them a good question, okay? Like, uh, how's it going? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean you can be creative. I mean this is your chance to, to ask your awkward speed dating mixer question. Um, If you're new to RUF, uh, the pressure is off. It's brave of you to come. I appreciate you coming. And I hope you feel welcome and you meet new people. All right, so is the sign up? Let's just pass that bad boy around. Um, So this is a, you can drop your email there. It's a good way to get connected with RUF. It's a good way to hear what's going on during the week. Sometimes we have events. We always do this uh, when school's in session. So this is a good opportunity to do that. If you've already signed up, please don't sign up again. Uh, you'll just get two emails instead of one, um, which won't be exciting for anyone. Also, we have a Facebook group, RU app. If you wanna go there, that's another great way to get connected. And there's always like really interesting YouTube videos that people post, and, um, like little comments, and sometimes we have theological debates, um, which are crazy, and I never participated, as you noticed. Um, but somehow I worked into my next large group talk. Um, so anyway, uh, anyway, that's a good way to get connected as well. Look, people, summer conference is coming, coming. Okay? Do you hear the footsteps? It's coming. <laughs> Look, Thursday, Thursday, five p.m. This Thursday. That's just like two days from now. Less than two days. Summer conference sign up is over. Here's the deal. We need to get our act together. We got to get vans rented. We got to fundraise like it's no tomorrow. Um, but if you want to go, it's three fifteen for the whole ten days, and that includes travel, that includes food, that includes uh, awesome seminars and worship and beach time and, and sailing and what? A t-shirt. And a t-shirt, which is pretty cool, which looks like the postcard. Um, and so you'll have a fanciful tree of the future on your, on your t-shirt um, anyway look, talk to me if you need a scholarship, money's not going to be the reason that you don't go if you don't want to go for some other reason, that's fine if you have a personal vendetta against you okay, we can talk about that but, but money, uh, money will not be the reason come talk to me Okay. have you seen our t-shirts? I mean, we had one up here earlier they're nice, okay you know, everybody's buying one, I don't do that so if, if peer pressure works, this is for a good cause. So go ahead and get one. Finally, international delights afterwards. Look, we, we go and we hang out at this place, this place, Turkish Techno, when it gets late. And uh, we drink uh, coffee or whatever, smoothies or whatever. And, and what? Uh, we drink. I, I finished my sentence. Okay. I finished my sentence. People, people Don't read between the lines of yes I mean, start talking about the passage That's what you need to read between the lines um, all, my, all my pauses So, anyway That's a good time If you need directions to go there Or if you need a ride, just come talk to me Or to someone who looks already experienced Okay I don't know what that looks like so, Probably not like Okay this semester, we're uh, looking at the letters to the Colossians, the book of Colossians, uh, in, the, in the Bible. And my best attempt at a title is this, What If Enough Was Actually Enough? How Jesus is everything we ever wanted and really needed anyway. Okay, so what if enough was actually enough? How Jesus is all we ever really wanted and needed anyway. This is what I think, and this is what most people think, this is what hopefully you're thinking by now, that the book of Colossians is driving towards, what it's getting at, that uh, Jesus is enough, and what that means, and then further, how what it means to live like Jesus is enough. And that's kind of what we're in that section right now, what it looks like to live uh, like Jesus is enough. But before we get into the section we're going to talk about, let me just recap, okay? So it's a letter, Paul's writing, a it's little, a little town, city in uh, southwest Turkey, modern-day Turkey, called Colossa. And God's, uh, God is writing through Paul to remind the Colossians and us. We're not reading someone else's mail. Uh, this isn't some shoebox time capsule thing. This is published in a word of God in the Bible. And we're being reminded about what the gospel is. The gospel is the central message of Christianity, which says, who is Jesus really, and what did he really do? Okay, So that's the focus of this letter. And so we see this, the gospel introduced in chapter 1, but we also see Paul introduced and what's going on in that town, and Turkey introduced. Okay? But then we get into chapter 2, verse 6, which is really the beginning of the end uh, for all of us and all of our hearts, because we see Paul making an argument about the shape of the Christian gospel-centered life. In chapter 2, we, he tells us how not to live, what fake religion looks like, and then in chapter 3, we see how to live. That is what true humanity, true love, look like in practice and practicality. Okay? And our passage picks up chapter 3's positive description of how to live and how to love. In verse 18 and following, all the way through the beginning of chapter 4, Paul describes how the Jesus-motivated life of love, how the Jesus-motivated life of love, what that works, what that looks like in our ordinary, everyday relationships. In our ordinary, everyday lives. So, in order to watch love unfold before our very eyes, in our daily lives, let's look at the the passage. We're going to look at Colossians chapter 3, verse 18, through Colossians chapter 4, verse 1. Uh, So, would you stand? We're going to read the scripture. Whoa, Nellie. So, it's a little uneven here great prop for illustration Okay, so uh, we're looking at Colossians chapter 3, verse 18 through chapter 4, verse 1. If you've got a Bible, you can turn there. It's in the New Testament, the last quarter or so of the Bible. It's between 1 Thessalonians and Philippians. Or you can just look at your sheet, which is really easy. Okay, so it's in the right-hand side. inside. So I'm reading out the English Standard Version translation. Chapter 3, verses 18 through chapter 4, verse 1. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Slaves, do obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service, as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward you are serving the Lord Jesus Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality in the Lord Jesus. Masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Friends, these are the words of God. They are more precious than gold, even much fine gold, and they are sweeter than honey, even honey from the honeycomb. Would you pray with me? Father, um, this is an extremely difficult passage, uh, and I pray that you would help soften our hearts to hear what you have to say, to, to believe, uh, to suspend maybe our disbelief and our doubts. I pray, Father, that you would be you'd make this an encouraging passage and not just um, me uh, in a corner defending things. I pray that you would move our hearts and our minds and our hands and our feet to live differently as a result of reading this passage and looking at it together. I pray your spirit would fill us and that out of that filling, we would love in a radically new and different way and look at our ordinary, everyday lives in a radically new and different way. We ask these things in your son's name, who is the only one by who this is possible. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. All right. So a few years ago, um, I was in this thing called seminary. It's a graduate school for people who are Christian, okay, and are studying to become a professional Christian, <laughs> which is what I am technically, um, which just means that I'm a pastor, okay. Uh, There's a few days. That's important detail. I was in the third year of studying, which is the last year of seminary. You take three years to get a master's of well, master's of divinity, which is the most arrogant title in the world. <laughs> Master divinity somehow. Um, anyway. Let's move on. Uh, so as a fee, I flew all the way from like Florida to Seattle for my friend's wedding, my friend from college. Okay, so you can't imagine a longer flight. Well, the best part was they didn't actually. I had a leg and it didn't go into. It didn't go west at all. It just went straight up the coast of Charlotte. So I flew from Charlotte to Seattle, Charlotte, North Carolina. That was like forever endeavor on that. Okay, so <laughs> that was a very long flight. I get there jet lag. We have a bachelor party. Great fine. And then we have a few days before the wedding because my friend decides that he wants to take all of our lives to celebrate his life. um, Which was beautiful. I enjoyed it, for the record. But anyway, so we have a few days, and there's this idea that maybe the groomsmen, which I'm one of them, and the bridesmaids should come together and meet each other mingle. You know, get to know each other before we walk each other back and forth down the aisle. Um, You know. And so I knew this was going to be awkward. Okay, I have, I'm with a bunch of people that I've been friends with, but I haven't really seen them for like five years, so it's already awkward. And then we're meeting these people that we'll know for maybe a weekend, and that's awkward. And um, there we are sort of in the back room of a pub. And, um, and I kind of was like, okay, this is going to be an awkward evening, and it's going to get even more so when I had a couple conversations and realized that I had to talk about what I do for a living. Um, because basically... Um, what I did for a living at that time was studying to be a pastor and a person who believed and taught the Bible and the conversation I had in just the first half hour told me that that fact, when I brought that out for everyone else would not be very exciting whatsoever But uh, people would not receive that well because people in, the, in just a half an hour getting to know them had basically dismissed Christianity and the Bible as a various outdated and wrong social views on a host of issues Without yet knowing that I was the pastor at the wedding, because I was the pastor at the wedding, that was the kind of wedding it was. Okay, which is great. I'm glad I was there. They they had heard about me already, and they had successfully sideswiped without knowing who I was. Christian views on sex and gender and family and economics, even. Okay, and without mentioning the Bible or Christianity by name, I just want you to understand this wasn't some sort of like spirited, lively theological debate. Okay. This was just, I was getting to know them, asking them what they did for a living, like where they lived, how they knew the bride, and it was just, and it was already kind of, uh, I was already residents. So was not going to be a pleasant and easy conversation. So there was this moment I was waiting for in this room, which was someone would eventually stop letting me ask them questions and ask me a question, what did I do for a living? Okay, so I peppered them with every sort of question, and finally one of the bridesmaids, made sweetly, but directly looked me in the eyes and said, Says, so, Sid, what do you do for a living? And I went, huh. <laughs> I was uncomfortable. I was embarrassed. I was feeling social pressure. And so I did what most of us would do in a moment like that. I braced myself. I looked for something to lean on with all of my weight, some sort of emotional, spiritual crutch that I could grasp onto. Um, and so I reached down, casually, of course, because that's how I was rolling. And I put my weight on a table, okay? And I leaned on that table with everything I had. Meanwhile, I had prepared this spiel in my head about how I would prove to the waiting audience that being a pastor was socially productive and for their benefit and awesome, okay? And so I leaned heavily on this table. And let's just say that the way the table gave way. Okay? So there I was. And that's a really nice way of putting it. The table actually flipped and fell right next to my feet on its side. Okay, what does that mean? That means that the drinks on all the table, like lots of drinks, catapulted into the air, end over end. So thankfully, the water slid in a heap on the floor, and it was just a little pool of water, great no problem but there was a singular glass of red wine that I set off like a catapult. And it went end over end over end, and the contents of that eight ounces of red wine sprayed like an old-fashioned sprinkler all over everyone in the room. Literally, it was like... It was it was a horrific scene. It was slow motion, truly. I don't... It end over end, I watched it rotate through. And I couldn't do anything, but I wasn't going to yell out, right? Because I was basically trying to catch myself before my face hit the table. (sighs) It was a bloody night, my friends. (laughs) Bloody. Bloody. Okay, there was red wine everywhere. It was all over the place. White fleeces, white scarves, nice dresses, all tinted crimson. Anyway, I spent the next hour sprinting back and forth to the bathroom with wet paper towels, cleaning up things I knew that no paper towel could clean up. Um, Because I felt like that was my Christian duty at the time. Um, And so I was scrubbing fleeces and scarves and dresses that were made to impress with a paper towel. And it would just grind my hands to pulp. Anyway, um, I wanted to shrivel up and die, as you can imagine, just like the massive paper towel... Four, which is all pulse at this point. And the, 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 the night ends, the scene ended, the hour ended, it didn't end with that, thankfully. I was on my hands and knees with a wet paper towel, scrubbing a very angry friend of the bride's white puma. Like a spot this big. There I was, <coughs> you know, like with my wet paper towel, knowing this wasn't going to work, on my hands and knees, basically groveling before thinking, this has gone really well. I have vindicated Jesus completely. (laughs) Completely. Um, Anyway, the discomfort and embarrassment that I felt that night is how I feel when I read this passage. (laughs) I'm sure it's all my insecurity, it's all my sin. I'm sorry for that. I am... But I, I can already feel my need to look for something steady up here, and this is not going to do it. <laughs> I'm not going to brace myself on this, lest I throw the entire projector end over end and <laughs> the microphone and the, the, the giant awesome tower of speakers. Okay, so I can, I mean, I'm speaking about very difficult social issues because the Bible is speaking about them, and I am a majority white male. Okay? I'm like the worst person to talk about this I'm old, I'm balding, I've got kids like, I got a minivan just last week I like have no credibility um, My educated guess is that wherever you are with the Bible and wherever you are with Jesus you felt similarly to me when I read this passage just now just out loud, okay? Whether you're firmly on the half and bare side of believing in this passage and believing in the Bible, or you're on the severely disappointed, doubt-based side of this passage, no matter where you are, um, you're feeling that discomfort. After all, Paul is talking about submission, he's talking about discipline, and he's talking about slavery. Okay? The Bible's views on gender, marriage, the family, and slavery have got to be among the most unpopular topics in all scripture. Okay? I love these words. In the, in the words of the humorous Mark Twain, he says this, most people are bothered by those passages of scripture which they can't understand, but as for me, I've always noticed that the passages in scripture which troubled me most are those which I do understand. (laughs) Okay, so he says most people are troubled by those passages in Scripture they can't understand. But he says, as for me, I'm most troubled by those passages I can understand. Okay, so our problem with these verses tonight is not that they are hard to understand. Or actually, is it? Is it actually that these are very hard to understand verses? Now look, these are not hard because they're grammatically complicated or they use long, big, old words. Okay? That's not what's going on here. But perhaps these verses are difficult to understand because we ourselves bring unexamined assumptions to this text. Assumptions about what words like submission look like in practice. Or assumptions about the superiority of our cultural moment among every other moment, present, past, and future. That assumption about our time being the best time that assumption is called by Owen Barfield beautifully chronological snobbery. Chronological snobbery, okay? And let me just let me let me just unpack what this is called chronological snobbery for just a second. Okay, so think about your great grandparents. And when they talk and when they think about certain things, you cringe, right? But now think about what your great-grandkids will will cringe about what you say and think right now. We need to understand that that's exactly the reality of what's going on here, okay? That we have to understand that our present moment, the problem is we don't know what about our present moment we think is poor. Do you get that? Okay, so an aside, sidebar, but we're going to move on, okay? So as we approach this text this evening, uh, I'd ask you to do this for me, okay? And I'm going to do the same thing. Uh, doubt your doubts for just a moment, okay? Doubt your doubts for just a moment. Approach the Bible on its own terms. Here's a thought experiment. The Bible is the word of God. Imagine if that were the case. If we hold back our suspicions and we approach this text with charity, trying to understand what it really says, I think we may just see how very practical and very helpful this passage is in our daily lives. Okay. So here's what it's saying. This is what the passage is saying. From chapter 3, verse 18 all the way to chapter 4, verse 1, it's saying this. Love is a dance that looks different with different people in our lives. Okay, Love is a dance that looks different with different people in our lives. But the music that moves our feet is always Jesus' love for us. So love is a dance that looks different based on who you're dancing with, different partners. But the music behind that dance is always the same. It's always moving us. It's Jesus Christ's love for us. Okay? For his people. So our passage tonight picks up where the rest of chapter 3 left off. It's saying, look, the gospel message is music, right? And faith is hearing that music. And obedience looks like dance stepping to that music. That's the metaphor, I think, that um, the text is talking about. It's talking about music of the gospel that we hear by faith, and it sets our feet moving in a certain pattern, in a certain way, a foxtrot, okay, or a waltz, or maybe getting jiggy with it, okay? I don't know what that looks like. Um, Obviously, I have a minivan. Okay, so... (laughs) So Will Smith. Okay, um, so... Therefore, look the love that chapter 3 has been talking about, has been speaking about, has been speaking to, that we've been looking at for the last couple weeks, um, is really just simply dancing to the music of Jesus' loving life, Jesus' loving death, and Jesus' loving resurrection. So that's really all it's getting at. And this part of the passage is talking about what it looks like when, when we dance, what it looks like when we love different partners, when we love different people. That's what this passage is getting at, okay? And our passage is telling us that it looks different based on different people. And so we can really break this this passage down into three separate sections about dance partners, if you will. A dance card, perhaps, Uh, for those of you who have terrible memories of semi-formals. Look, First, verses 18 through 19, we see the dance of marriage and different genders. The dance of marriage involves a husband and a wife. Look next at verses 20 through 21. We see the dance of family and different ages. And this dance of family involves a parent and a child. On the third, we see in in chapter 3, verse 22, through chapter 4, verse 1, the dance of work and different social statuses. The dance of work involves a boss and an employee. So verse 18 through 19, the uh, the dance of marriage... And different genders. Verses verses 20 through 21, we see the dance of different ages and family. And then verses 22 through verse 1 of chapter 4 describe the dance of different statuses and work. Does that make sense? So we're looking at two different different ways in which different relationships we have. So I've really introduced this. I've laid out the plan. Um, we are excited, but here's the deal. I love you guys enough. I care about you enough to not make you be here an hour. Okay, and so I cannot tackle all of that. I can't tackle all of that. The amount of amount of discussion about just the word of submission alone will take a long time. So I'm going to have to postpone talk about slavery until the next time. Okay, I can't get to it. I'm still going to talk about marriage and family, uh, but I'm going to talk about slavery at a time. Okay, so look forward to that. But tonight we're going to look at first marriage. I, had, I mean, I'm telling you, I had tons of notes. I could have done it to you. I could have made you go for like an hour, an hour and a half. But I care too much. Right here. That's the right side. Right here. <laughs> so, anyway, okay. Look, tonight we're going to look at first at the dance of different genders, verses 18 through 19. And second, at the dance of different ages and family, in verses 20 through 21. So we're really going to look at about four verses. That very, the first four verses. But I wanted to set up the whole situation so you could see the big scope of it, okay? Let me read verses 18 through 19 again for you. What's that awkward? Lean on it? <laughs> no, no red wine, thankfully. Um, I'll pick that up in a second. Wives, submit to your husbands as a spitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. And that's it. Okay, now, hold on a second. Uh, talk amongst yourselves. Road, is either road nor island. Duran, Duran, is neither Duran nor Duran. Uh, You drive in a parkway, you park in a driveway Okay (laughs) Oh look at that stuff, we're back Okay (laughs) And you guys still haven't solved that mystery Sounds good Okay, so back to the, the verses, right So when I read those verses, where did our focus land, right So our focus landed, I think, clearly we fix it in the difference between what's committed of a wife and what's committed of a husband. We focused on that the wife is to submit and the husband is to love. And this seems unfair, right? Unless, or until, we look at what those words actually mean. Until we look at what love and submit actually mean. Okay? Look, there's a lot of cultural baggage around the word submit, so I'm going to tell you what it doesn't mean. First, okay? So it doesn't mean this. What the Bible says about the word submission, when you hear that word, some of you have this vivid picture in your mind. Maybe it's a memory of an abusive father yelling at a cowering mother in a kitchen about using the language of the Bible, submit woman. Some of you have that memory. Some of you saw that in a neighbor's house. Some of you have seen that on a television screen or a movie theater. All I can say is, I'm sorry other people hurt other people. I'm sorry that men hurt women, and I'm especially sorry that they do it in the name of Jesus. That's disgusting. It's a heinous sin, and it deserves a real and radical consequence. But really, that dad should have looked at this passage more closely. That dad should have looked at this, the whole passage before he quoted part of it to them all. Look at verse 19 with me. How is abuse loving a woman? Isn't abuse by definition being harsh with someone? In the Greek, the word submission means to give yourself voluntarily. It cannot be demanded. Okay? Biblically, submission is a reference to someone equal putting aside their rights and serving someone else who's the same, who's an equal. Okay? It does not imply that the woman or the wife is inferior whatsoever. Otherwise, we would have to think that Jesus Christ is inferior to God the Father. Because Jesus Christ's whole ministry to rescue and save us from our sins is an act of submission to the will of God the Father. Okay, Jesus and God the Father are equals even as Jesus chooses to serve God the Father. Do you get that? If you say that women are inferior just because of this one word you've got some problems because all of a sudden you're making God, people of the Godhead inferior, and that's messed up just for the record, okay and then we can have a lively theological debate about that in international lights, okay Um, look, finally there's this parallel passage in Ephesians that actually gives you a bigger context and gives you more background on on this text and basically what it says is that submission is not just the woman or the wife's thing, submission is actually the husband or the man's thing too Submission is what both parties do in all of these relationships. Okay? Here's, what, here's the difference, though, okay? The husband, is, his submission looks like this it looks like gentle love of his wife. It looks like an act of submission, not a reign of terror. His love looks like Jesus' love. It is Jesus' love. It's literally in the Greek, agapao, which is where we get the word agape. It's the same root. It's divine love for his wife. Okay? It is self-sacrificial by definition. Because God's love for us is self-sacrificial by definition. Okay, this is, why, this is why C.S. Lewis says this beautifully profound thing. The husband's crown in marriage is not made of gold. It's made of thorns. The husband's crown in marriage is not made of gold. It's made of thorns. Do you get that? The husband is imitating Christ, and love is not power politics. Submission has nothing to do with power plays, it has nothing to do with will to power, it has everything to do with loving other people for their sake out of self sacrifice. And this, this leads to the verse's points, I think, okay? The point of the whole verse, okay? We've abused the word submission. Okay? There are people who have done that. There are churches that have done that. There are men that have done that. There are husbands that have done that. And again, I'm sorry for that, but abuse does not rule out use. Okay? Abuse does not rule out use. That means just because some people use the word submission poorly, that they love their wives poorly, does not mean that everyone else should love their wives they should not try to love their wives. Does that make sense? So just because it's done poorly doesn't mean you shouldn't do it at all. That's what abuse does not wear out. Use means. I mean, this is actually what this passage is about. It actually has a lot to do with your lives. I understand that most of you are thinking right now, whew, okay, maybe there's a few of you that are married. But most of you are thinking, I'm not married, I'm not even dating Sid, where are we going with this? <laughs> Fire it again. Thomas, <laughs> Thank you for the clarification. <laughs> yeah. Jeez, the pauses. Now, all you're now allowed to read between the lines, aren't you? <laughs> okay. Um, look, my first piece of advice to you is this: file this away for later. Okay, file this away for later. Statistically, almost every one of you in this room is going to get married. That's just the statistics. It may be now, it may be soon, it may be in the distant future. But calling, the calling of marriage is for almost everyone in this room. The calling of singleness is for very few of you, if none of you in this room. That's, the, that's how it works. So please understand that husbands and wives need different kinds of love. They need different kinds of love. This is, this is important, and it will be certainly important. And here's why it is important. Even now in the present, our concept of different flavors of love, different love languages, is an important takeaway from these verses. Okay, from verses 18 and 19. Each spouse needs to be loved differently. And that difference is based on gender. Hence the words submission for men and agape love for women. What verses 18 and 19 are basically saying is that men run on. Men are fueled by being respected, and women are run on and are being are, and being fueled are fueled by being cherished. Okay, and I can prove that to you in the Greek, but I don't have time. Okay, you can ask me about it later. Um, look, both men and women need respect and love. Both do. Okay, but generally, men need respect and women need love. More than the other one. Okay, does that make sense? So women need need love more than men, and men need respect more than women, generally. Okay, and that's what this is saying. And I want you to understand: men and women are equal, absolutely equal. Both are made absolutely in the image of God. They have the same dignity, the same worth, the same everything. Okay, but we are designed differently, and it's not just physical. There's an emotional difference. There's a spiritual difference. And that's important. Therefore, here's two applications, okay? Therefore, first, we want different kinds of love. Okay? Men want to know they're accomplishing and producing something. Okay? Look, I'm gonna talk about myself. We worry, I worry that I'm failing most of the time. That's my concern. So, guys and girls, the way to love the men in your life, may to love men here, is to cheer them on, to give them respect. To affirm that Jesus is going to make all of their imperfect works perfect. All of their imperfect tests, all of their imperfect papers, all of their imperfect pay periods perfect. That's encouragement. And that's what men want and need. Women want to know that they are affirmed and cherished and special. Look, you all worry, the women in the audience, that you're unlovely, that you're unlovable most of the time. So, guys and girls, Love the women in your life. Love the women in this room in that particular way by encouraging them to rest. To rest in Jesus' beauty. To rest in Jesus' put-togetherness. Look, the fact that men and women are equal but not the same, that's what we're saying, basically. They're equal but not equivalent. That's the fancy way of saying it. They're equal but not the same. This means that we all have different wants and desires behind our sins, our selfishness, as well. Okay, second application. We have different wants that are behind our desires. So the desire for respect and for self-worth leads many men into pornography. Look, it's a fantasy land. Pornography is a fantasy land where unreal people exist to do everything we want, to fawn over us at the click of a button. That's appealing to respect. Okay? And the desire to feel special, to be cherished, leads many women into eating disorders. There's this belief that if you just lost a few pounds, you were a little thinner, then maybe, just maybe, people would adore you like you want to be adored. And people would whisper over you special somethings, special compliments that you just long to hear by yourself. Please remember, we will fail to love men and to love women, we will get lost in virtual sex and counting calories unless unless we see that love is in Jesus. That we see that we are loved by Jesus. And we see that love is what Jesus is giving us. We can only dance the steps of love. We can only dance the steps of love and not self-assertion, not self-aggression, not self-triumph. By hearing the music of Jesus. By hearing the music of the union with Christ. That he's in us and we're in him. And that he's renewing us daily. In his image. Let's not lose sight of that. Because God and Jesus Christ has submitted to the cross for our self-worth. Because Jesus Christ right now is adoring us. And he's whispering sweet compliments over us. We long to hear. So, the dance of marriage, we need to re-examine what exactly submission means. Likewise, the dance of family needs a second one. And particularly, let's look at this phrase, it's very troublesome. Children, obey your parents in everything. Okay? When we read this verse, we have this cultural image of discipline that makes the family this like one-way, uphill battle for the child. Like a steep slope they can never climb child has no voice, she's supposed to be seen and not heard, she has to earn the affections of the parent, and earn the affections of God through good behavior, through obedience every little, act, every little obedient act that little Susie does she gets a crumb, or crumbled affection, that's our view here, and maybe this was your experience growing up, maybe this was your neighbor's experience growing up maybe you've just seen it on television and maybe all of those things were done in Jesus' name but that image is not what this passage is about. It's just not. I'm sorry that wrong and sad and bad things have happened to you or your friend. And Aria wants to be a community where we can come alongside you and weep with you and walk with you in that. But just look at verse 21 in the meantime. There we see, even in the family, even that large age gap of experience that love is the two-way street. It's a two way street. Do you see that? Okay. A parent isn't a tyrant. A parent isn't a prison warden. Love must be unconditional regardless of behavior. Conditional love is, by definition, provoking and discouraging. Okay, we have to love unconditionally. So Christianity does not promote. Treating children like Cinderella. It doesn't promote some half orphan character from a Charles Dickens novel of the 19th century. That's not what Christianity is about. That's not what it's talking about in this passage. And further, I think we need to understand this fact, that the vast majority of us in this room are not whom verse 20 is addressing. Okay? We're not being addressed by this. Why? The word technon, children in the Greek, refers to minors. Okay? It refers to children under 18. People who haven't gotten their rights, okay? So if you're 18 and living at home, you still have to do chores, okay? Still do the chores that they ask you to do because you're living at home, okay? And you that's what you pay rent with or whatever, okay? But your folks should exercise a heck of a lot of caution about demanding things of you if you're over 18, about any other sphere of your life because, frankly, your role is to honor them, not to obey them and everything, Okay? And you can already see right here how we're seeing that everything is already limited. It's already limited by our age, and by where we live. It's already limited by the fact that we have to think about um, what, is, what pleases the Lord. And finally, we have to think about what you can't command things as a parent if they provoke or discourage. Do you get that? So then everything has a context. And the context says it's not actually everything. Does that make sense? If you don't buy that, you can talk about it live in the discussion from National Lights. Okay. So, here's the takeaway, okay? You have to honor your parents. You do, okay? Even if you're over 18. And if you're over 18, you don't have to obey them in everything. Okay. And again, I told you that everything's already loose. And this is hard. Why? Because verses 20 and 21, our problem with those is not actually what we're thinking is our problem isn't with the abuses of authority it's with authority itself do we get that? we have trouble with authority itself I can give you like a million analogies by the way because that's just what I do about why this works but basically let me give you a couple okay? there is harmony in living with uh, authority okay? we, need har- we need authority to live in harmony on a societal level if we didn't have traffic laws we'd all be dead Okay, that's authority and an orchestra, without a conductor, it's just a bunch of noise. Because you need someone to tell the violinist to keep it down, and the timpani person, the drum person, to keep it up. Okay? Otherwise, everyone's playing for the glory of themselves. And that's not helpful. and certainly not beautiful. But listen to the way C.S. Lewis points it. For those counting, this is my fourth C.S. Lewis reference in three weeks. Just putting that on the table, just so you can Okay. He's good. If the home is, to, is this is C.S. Lewis. He's how he puts it. Is. If the home is to be a place of grace, it must be a place of rules. The alternative to rules, not freedom. Okay. The alternative to rules, not freedom, but the unconstitutional and often unconscious tyranny of the most selfish member. Here's what he's saying. Look, if a home is to be a place of grace, it must be a place of rules. The alternative to rule is not freedom. It's not freedom. Okay. It's a place of tyranny where the most selfish person lives. That's what he's saying. Without authority, the selfish person wins. That's a helpful reminder for why parents have to lay down rules in the first place to protect their children and themselves from selfishness. Second, further, it's a helpful reminder for us who live in a freedom at any cost society that worships youth. Okay? Do you get that? We worship youth in all of our fleeting beauty, hobbies, and spending power. Well maybe just your fleeting hobbies, <laughs> beauty, and spending power. Okay? Look, I'm ending I'm almost done. Okay? Here's here it is. So I'm the same wedding back in Seattle a couple years ago, I gave a toast. I did. After that, after the the wine catapults, I somehow managed to, to regain status and favor enough to actually get able to get toast. I toasted to the bride and groom. And I praised a love that always lays down its life for another. Basically, my toast was like a sermonette. It was a small sermon about what biblical love looks like, and and all the self-sacrifice, especially marriage, that biblical love has. And I quoted the Bible. And to my surprise, because that's all I can do, to my surprise, the toast was extremely well-received by the exact same person's Sexy people who thought the Bible was dismal about the social love issues like gender and marriage and family. Look, I speak for a living and I'm not that bad at toasts. Believe it or not. Okay? Not so many asides, I promise you, a toast. But I'm pretty sure the reason that the toast was attractive was not how I said it, but what I said. The Bible's description of love is what. That thing that we've been discussing for the last half an hour is extremely attractive. Do you get that? No matter who you are, no matter where you are, it's attractive. It's attractive because it goes both ways. It goes between both persons. It goes between both partners in a dance of a relationship. Biblical love is attractive because it disagrees with us at times. When we think love is lost or getting our way, the Bible disagrees. disagrees. When society says everyone's the same or freedom without responsibility, love pushes back. And we're reminded that love is self-giving, it's compassionate. And let me just put it this way. Love is not a victory march or how to shoot at someone who outdrew you. Love is not a cry you hear at night. It's not somebody who's seen the light. It's a cold and it's a broken hallelujah. Hallelujah. That is a Leonard Cohen song. And love is a cold and broken, hallelujah. It is an imperfect and messed up, literally, hallelujah, praise the Lord. That's what it means in the Hebrew. Praise the Lord. It is an imperfect and messed up, praise the Lord. you get that? Love is Jesus coming down into this cold and broken world filled with imperfect, messed up people like us. Love is Jesus submitting and loving. He's commanding and he's obeying all of his earthly life for us who believe. Love is Jesus laying down his life for us when we weren't even born yet. Love is Jesus singing to and dancing with us when all we want to do is pout and all we do when we dance is step on his toes. Love is us dancing towards other people with respect and love, with obedience and unconditional love. Do you realize that we praise the Lord when we dance like this? We praise God when we match our footfalls with their footfalls. Especially when their footfalls are not the same as our footfalls. Especially when those people that we're dancing with are different. Would you pray with me? Father, um, this was hot and long and tired. Um, I pray that you would be with our hearts there's a lot to unpack here there's a lot to wipe away and a lot to admire um, about what you've given us in this passage even just the four short verses um, I pray that you would help our hearts uh, in our doubts and our half embarrassment to know um, that your word speaks truly that your gospel challenges us that we can live a life of love By your power, by your grace, by your very presence in our lives. We ask for this strength, this power, this faith. In your name, Jesus. Amen.